0: Welcome to Near-Death Experience Podcast, the official source of audio accounts for the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. I'm Chaz Hathaway, author of Life in the Spirit World, What Near-Death Experiences May Teach About Life on the Other Side. I got a really interesting uh, experience from a listener this week that I'm going to share. It's just a, a short account, but it's, it's very interesting and I'd, and I'd like to share it. The emailer says, Dearest Chaz, I hope this finds you in excellent health. I have a quick story of an episode that happened to my son nearly 38 years ago. In my words, this event started on a late summer evening. My husband and I were going to run to the store for ice cream for a hot evening treat before bed. As we got settled in the car... My sister, who was babysitting my two- and four-year-old sons, came running out of the house in a complete state of panic. "'Something's wrong with Jake!' she screamed. I ran in the house and found him convulsing on the kitchen floor. I grabbed him and ran to the car. We rushed three blocks to the local hospital. The greatest fear I've ever known fell over me. "'I'm going to lose my son!' I remember crying and being so upset, the pediatrician who had never seen my son before rode in the ambulance with my son and a nurse from the ER. The experience happened just 10 miles from the Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. I was a wreck, feeling like I would never hold my son alive again. Crying hysterically as we followed the ambulance, I looked up and saw the brightest light I have ever seen coming from the back of the ambulance. None else in the car saw it. In that instance, the greatest feeling of love and knowledge that everything would be okay came over me. Hard to explain, really. I just knew that all would be well. And it was. Still a concerning event, but I had 100% knowledge that he would Live. Years later, he came to me and explained that he met Jesus in the ambulance and remembers looking out the back window and seeing the car interior all lit up, even though it was a pitch black night we were traveling through. He asked him, Why is mommy crying? And Jesus told him, Because she thinks you're going to die. My son then said, Well, am I? Jesus then told him, no, you have a purpose and need to live in your body longer. And that's the end of the experience. Oh, that is so cool. That is so cool. She, she does end by saying, I find it, or I find great joy in listening to your podcast as this is is very real. And there is life beyond death of this. I am sure And let me just say, this is a unique experience because I would consider this a shared death experience, and yet the person dying returned, and not just returned, but returned with a near-death experience. This is something I have not heard of before, and yet I'm sure it happens a lot. It's It's not like this is strange that this would occur. It's just, for me, a little bit of a landmark in my research because not only was it a shared death experience but it was a shared death experience with someone who actually came back and not just someone that came back but someone that came back and was later able to say that they had had a near-death experience so cool so cool she sees this light in you know coming out of the back of the ambulance or from the back of the ambulance and you know brightest light she'd ever seen and she feels this overwhelming love, this feeling that everything is going to be okay. And apparently in that time that she's having that experience, her son, who again, I think she said was four years old, I believe, if he wasn't the two-year-old, I think he was the four-year-old, but uh, she says that he he meets Jesus in that same at that same time and Jesus is talking with him and letting him know everything's gonna be okay and he's concerned about his mommy who's crying there and he's like why is mommy crying and it's because Jesus uh, or Jesus says it's because she thinks you're gonna die and of su- such an innocent response well am I and he says no you have a purpose and need to be in your body longer beautiful absolutely beautiful thank you so much uh to to this listener who sh- shared this experience. This is this is really cool. Okay, and since we are only a few minutes in, I'm going to go ahead and share another experience from enderf.org, the near death experience research foundation website, and this is Gia. Gia says, "Hi, my name is Gia. In 1981, I was almost 16 years old and home for Christmas. I was visiting a girlfriend at my at her stepmother's trailer home and planned to spend the night there were four of us girls my friend debbie her stepmother a nurse debbie's stepsister aged five years old and myself we were drinking pop eating pizza and watching the superman movie with christopher reeves where he loses his powers superman two or three and i'm just going to say for the listener's sake it's uh, superman two that he willingly gives up his uh, powers in order to be able to marry uh Lois. Anyway, I'd never seen it before, she says. At one point in the movie, Superman is in a restaurant and he turns his back to a man who attacks him from behind. I think the man either punched or kicked him in the back and he experienced amazing pain and and maybe became paralyzed. I don't recall now. But at any rate, the cruelty of the act, along with the sheer pain he felt, struck me like I'd been hit. It was odd, because I'd never felt a particular affinity for Superman, and it was just a movie. Why should I over-identify with his pain? And yet I did. And so here's what happened when I took on Superman's pain. I looked up and noticed something like a curtain coming down. Slowly and evenly it descended, giving me time to observe its quality and texture. Since I have never seen anything like it in real life, I can only describe it as textured air, translucent, woven air. It lowered like a stage curtain, eventually enveloping us three-dimensionally. But I was the only one who noticed. I felt very uncomfortable with the experience and asked where the bathroom was. The mother asked her daughter to show me the way, and I got up to follow her. I felt like pushing her aside as I couldn't get to the bathroom quick enough. I was disoriented and trying not to panic. Once inside the bathroom, I decided to do something normal and hoped the strange feeling and air would go away. I sat on the toilet and looked in the large mirror across from it. The weird stuff wasn't going anywhere. I went through the motions of elimination, hoping the routine act would bring me a state of normalcy, back to a state of normalcy. Then I heard a loud sound. I was sitting next to the toilet on the floor, contemplating the sound when my friend Debbie knocked on the door. She asked me if I was all right, and if I'd fallen off the toilet before beginning to laugh hysterically. I called for her to enter. When she came in, I tried to explain to her as calmly as I could what was happening to me. It was hard to speak, as if the air felt thick, and it took effort to get my mouth to explain it. I must have fallen off when I stood up from the toilet, but I have—but I had no recollection of doing so and wasn't sure I believed it. Debbie kept laughing, and so did I, nervously. She thought it was the funniest thing in the world that I should do such a thing. It didn't seem funny to me, though, as though I was possibly going crazy or would die or something, given I wasn't the type to faint or fall off toilets. I tried to get Debbie to take me seriously and gravely explain the air and its dense quality. As I talked, I tried to wash my hands, but it felt very unusual. Our voices were starting to sound muffled. I reached for the toilet, and it seemed like an eternity to reach it. "'and dry my hands. "'The air was so dense then "'that I could barely move through it. "'I turned back to Debbie, "'said I was scared "'and didn't know what was happening to me. "'I wanted to cry. "'The next thing I knew, "'I saw myself lean forward "'onto Debbie's shoulder. "'What happened? "'I suddenly felt like "'the me that was Gia "'was now someone else "'watching Gia pass out "'on Debbie's shoulder.' I was concerned for Gia, but I felt fine. I was afraid she'd be embarrassed for losing control over Superman. How would she explain this to herself? Debbie called out to her stepmother that I'd passed out, and the mother and her daughter rushed in. I watched them talk about what was happening and what they were going to do with me. I wasn't worried about Gia, really, as I felt she was safe with a nurse in the house, but I was very concerned for her pride for some reason. I don't remember if I looked in the mirror at that point, as I was so transfixed upon Gia as separate from myself, and upon their discussion about her. Debbie held Gia's head, and her stepmother held Gia's feet, while the little girl watched them both carry Gia out of the bathroom, down the hall and around the corner to the living room where they lay Gia on the couch. I stood at the corner about 20 feet away. I didn't know what to do. I wasn't sure how long Gia would be okay without me. I felt responsible for her. I felt she was vulnerable without me. Still, I didn't see any white light or dead relatives. The thought didn't even occur to me. I just stood there for a while watching Gia lay there, lie there as the nurse took her vital signs. They said she was breathing and was okay, but that she'd passed out and weren't sure what to do next. I couldn't stand it anymore. I had to help Gia. I didn't know how, but I decided to try to get over to her and hope that maybe I could pop her into or pop back into her somehow. Since I didn't know how I got out, I didn't have any clue how to get back in. But what I did have to lose, uh, but what did I have to lose in trying? So I drifted or willed myself or whatever myself that away, and sat on the couch, which I guessed would be like sitting on yourself. The next thing I knew, though, I was lying down looking through Gia's eyes again. We were one and us again. I sat her up. I, it took some time as we were very lethargic and slow. We sat there a while. The air was still thick and gauzy. Debbie and her stepmother asked me if I was okay, but it took me a while before I could speak. Then the weirdest thing of all happened. The veil of air just lifted as it had earlier lowered slowly and like a stage curtain going up to the ceiling, and then it was gone. The air was clear again. Once I could speak, I started to tell my tale, but I would have walked ten miles for a cup of orange juice. I asked for it, and they said they had none, but that they did still have a bag of oranges. I craved them intensely. They peeled and fed me about six to eight oranges until I felt restored. After a while they drove me home to my mom's house and I woke her to tell her about what had happened to me. I'm 40 now and relatively sane and nothing like it has ever happened to me again. Could it be that I just needed some citric acid that that bad? Go figure. And that's the end of Gia's experience. Very interesting. (laughs) You know the I don't know if any of you are Doctor Who fans, but this, when she's suddenly asking for oranges and just just downing these oranges, it it reminds me of kind of a Doctor Who kind of a thing to do um, uh, when the doctor needs healing, depending on her, uh, her incarnation, she would uh, uh, need a different kind of food. And uh, anyway, it just made me think of that, but <laughs> this is an interesting experience, uh, and uh, for the first thing that I noticed for, uh, first off, what I found interesting was this connection to Superman. Now I've heard of people having, uh, um, sympathy pains, if you will, or empathy pains. There are, uh, forms of synesthesia where people will actually feel what they see others going through. And perhaps this was, uh, a temporary bout of that, whatever even that means, I don't know. But I have never heard of one leading to a near-death experience, nor have I, I'm trying to think if I've heard of anybody even passing out from sympathy pains. Now, could it be that she was in the verge of passing out, say, from a vitamin C deficiency or whatever it was, and seeing that in the movie, just kind of, it's like her brain just latched on to that as being the cause. I don't know. I don't know what it was. But something about that experience um, triggered something in her. And, you know, there may be more to it than that. Because, you know, first off, let, let me just say up front, it's very likely that she was just passing out or whatever. And and, you know, maybe her empathy for his situation took on a role because of, of that being what she was seeing at the time. I don't know. But there is a sensitivity about many who have had near-death experiences where they cannot bear to see excessively violent movies or movies where people are being cruel to each other, speaking just severe, you know, abusively things to each other, you know, most people kind of cringe at those kinds of things, or at least, or at least like, whoa, you know, or whatever, but people who have had near-death experiences, and many who have become very spiritually sensitive, um, either by studying spiritual things, or um, sometimes very religious people, if it's a very spiritual, religious attitude that they have, can become very sensitive toward things like that. I've had that myself for many years where, you know, I, I can sit through, you know, a lot of the superhero shows where there's fighting and stuff, but I usually have to watch either edited versions if they're like PG-13s, for example, uh, for violence. I, it, it's too much for me. I have to either fast forward or I have to turn it off or things like that. And I think that's fairly common um, for people who are kind of spiritually minded like that. But it seems to be even more so for those who have had near-death experiences. Now, as far as we know, from what Gia says, she's never had an experience like this before. But there may be something about our spiritual sensitivities, that when we see things in the right context, they act as triggers for what our spirits would consider uh, a situation that is too cruel, too painful, too hurting of another. You know, we are one in some way as people. We are. We we're not just empathetic. We're not just sympathetic of each other's uh, situations. But part of us, some part of us, is connected so intimately that people on the other side will sometimes confuse. Um, their own identity with those of others. That's how close we can be. And it's possible that sometimes in seeing severe violence or cruelty or things like that that uh, you know even depicted in a movie, you know uh, can do something to us. and it and it's like that uh, that connection that we have with other people, even if it's not real, just that, you know, our brains getting so involved in the story that we, it's as if we're there and we're deeply delved into the story. And then this happens to them. It's almost as if it's happening to us. I think there is something to that. Now, if you watch movie after movie, watch movies every day, violence, whatever, you just dull that away. You know, you can you can certainly desensitize yourself to these um, deep, spiritual sensitivities. But, uh, to those who don't overindulge in these kinds of things, they will find at times a certain level of violence or cruelty that they just, they can't, they, 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 at first they're cringing and then it gets to a point they're like, I can't watch this. And they will either turn it off or, or, um, whatever, you know, step away from it. But very interesting. And I think it's, it's something to consider. Um, as we, you know, notice these things, we research this stuff, because, you know, let's face it, we are more connected than we may think. And that may be a little bit of, of the research to back that up. Um, and then this curtain thing, I, this is not the first time that I've heard of a curtain of sorts, um, coming over, uh, the person. Now, in terms of this textured air, the translucent woven air, as she puts it, I'm not clear on if it's as if the air is coming down in a curtain and then the curtain is kind of engulfing her, or if this curtain is coming down and with it, the air is thickening in some way. I'm not entirely clear on that, but this thickening of the air or the, uh, the air becoming um, thick enough that uh, she feels like it's hard to push through the air is interesting. I've not heard about that. That sounds physical and sounds neurological, perhaps, but the, but the curtain sounds near-death experience-ish, okay? That sounds like something, it could be one of the metaphorical actualities that, uh, that we talk about. I think I'll use that term again, if I can remember it, Uh, metaphorical actuality, uh, something that is there as a metaphor, but it actually is physically there, you know, much like you might, uh, um, you might have, give somebody a gift that is symbolic of your relationship because of experiences you've had together, where it's a symbol of, your time together, and they, they immediately recognize it that way. And it's a symbol first, but it is actually a thing there. It is actually a gift. So um, I, I think there is a lot of that in the spirit world. And perhaps this is one of those things, because curtains seem to show up in near-death experiences. And then, at some point, she, she is separated from her body. And when she separates from her body, she immediately disassociates with it to the point where she's she's trying to, you know, in her telling of the story, she has to use the third person. in And she's referring to Gia as the body, and then her herself as herself. And she talks about it as if it's a relationship that they've had all this time. And Gia needs help. She can see that You know, at first she's thinking Gia's in good hands because she's with a nurse. And, uh, but, but I'm fine, is kind of her attitude. She's not too afraid for Gia, except she's, she's afraid that Gia is going to be embarrassed for losing control over her body because of a silly scene from Superman. I mean, she's, she can be embarrassed about that. And she's a little concerned that Debbie, her body is going to be, um, going to be embarrassed about that. That's her concern for Gia. Interesting. And then when she realizes Jenny, uh, that sorry, not Jenny, but Gia is going to have a problem if she doesn't help her. She says, I, c- I couldn't stand anymore. I had to help Gia. And yet she didn't know how. She's like, how can I uh, get back in her? I-, I don't know how to get back in. And so what she does is go to sit on her, with her, I don't know, on her lap or, or whatever. And she probably instinctively knew that she'd be able to pass through her. And so she passed into her. And the moment she does, she's suddenly realizing she's looking out of Gia's eyes again. And then, interesting thing, she starts using the pronoun we. We were one and us again. I sat her up. It took some time as if we were very lethargic and slow. We sat there a while. And then it's not until then the next paragraph when she says, once I could speak, I started to tell my tale. And suddenly she's fully her again, body and all. But how interesting that she's seeing this body, who she calls Gia, as being a separate individual, so to speak. You know, there are many experiences that we have heard about where the body is somehow separate from the, from the spirit, or the body is separate from the spirit, um, such as the body is maybe in a coma, or the body is screaming during this accident or something, while the spirit is watching from above. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. And I would be fascinated to find out more about about that kind of thing—it's—it's—I um, um, mean, very fringe stuff as far as you know what we can um, say confidently about what's going on on the other side. But it's—it's uh, it's reflected in this experience of of Gia uh, and her, you know, spirit separating and feeling like a separate individual from her body, and yet considering her body as if a friend that she needs to join with and then for a time it's as if they're a joint individual of two people together in one, so to speak. That's so interesting. And it makes sense. I mean, I mean, as spirits, we are ourselves. That's who we are. If you were to die this moment, it would be your spirit that you would continue to think and feel from. Um, but your body would separate. And, uh, and that sense of togetherness with a body is just that's just very interesting. Anyway, so if you would like to contribute to the podcast, you can do so by either purchasing the book Life in the Spirit World, which is, you will find a copy of it at the bookstore on our website, near death experience and you can either get, it's it's available in Softbound, it's available in ebook, it's available in Kindle book, you know, and, and purchasing that book supports the podcast because it shows interest in this and it's the kind of thing that if the book is selling, then I know that, you know, the podcast is supporting the book and therefore we keep the podcast going to support the book, the book keeps going to support me and my family so I can keep doing this. It's, it's... Uh, an ecosystem, if you will. <laughs> Another way you can support the podcast, which will also provide you with an additional episode of the podcast every week, is by going to patreon.com slash ndecast and becoming an ongoing monthly contributor. That's, um new episode each week started last week, and there will be a new one this week, and it will continue to do so, so long as we are continuing to get at least $50 a month in contributor uh, money. And that is coming in. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much to all of you who are contributing. You can also contact the podcast or share a comment or ask a question or even share your own experience, um, as our commenter did today, for which we are very grateful, by emailing near-death-experience-podcast at gmail.com or by calling 970-NDECAST. And once again, thank you, all of you, so much again for listening.